Acts chapter 8, and we'll uh, begin reading in verse number 1. Just a reminder that next Wednesday's schedule is going to be a little different. We'll uh, have an abbreviated prayer time. We'll sing one song. We're going to have our Bible study. Uh, And then at at about 7.30, so about this time, uh, we'll be heading upstairs to watch the Derby Car, Pinewood Derby Car Race with the kids. And there's going to be food up there. Uh, We're talking about either like a loaded baked potato or a taco in a bag type thing. And we'll be selling those. Uh, The proceeds will go to help pay for the track that we're buying uh, and I believe Brother Greer's helping us with that, but there still are some expenses involved. So come and bring your appetite next week, and uh, please plan on sticking around. Don't, you know, just split at 7.30 when the Bible study's over. Uh, go up and encourage our kids. You'll have a good time with that. All right, Acts 8. Let's stand this evening as we read God's Word, and we'll be uh, uh, really from Acts 2 through about Acts chapter 13 this evening. But we'll begin here in verse 8. It's kind of the pivot of the... Pivot of the message. So we'll begin in verse 1 and we'll read down through verse 4. The Bible says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, speaking of Stephen. And at that uh, time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women, uh, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that went, were scattered abroad went every, uh, went, uh, excuse me, let me begin verse 4 again. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. We'll continue our study in Acts. The title of it is The Commission of the Christian and the Church. Let's pray. God, I ask tonight you'd help us as we study, uh, dig deep, dive into uh, uh, the book of Acts and seek to understand it a little bit better. And Lord, our commission is the greatest commission, your commission to us. So help us to understand it. And then, Lord, help us to do our best to live it in Jesus name. Amen. You can be seated. Can you turn back over to Acts chapter one with me just uh, uh, real quick here? And again, I want to, uh, for those of you that weren't here last week, I want to show you the geographical breakdown of the book. How the book, um, God uh, has the book broken down, and that is exactly how Jesus instructed the the discipleship effort. Look at verse 8, but ye shall receive power, Acts 1.8, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we see there uh, uh, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost. Jerusalem, the evangelizing of Jerusalem takes place from chapter 2 through chapter number 7. The evangelizing of Judea and Samaria take place from chapters 8 through 12. And then chapters 13 through chapter 28 Focus on the uttermost. So last week, uh, you see there, if you've got a prayer bulletin, I hope you have you hope you got a prayer bulletin coming in the door here. Let's see here. Um, who didn't get a prayer bulletin and would like one? Anybody? All right. Brother Joe, could you hop up and get those? I, I should be on the back seat there. Maybe, um, maybe in the lobby. 
and uh, just figure out who needs one and get them one. That would be great. Uh, but on the back of that, you find our outline for this evening. And the first three points are filled in uh, because that's what we covered last week. We looked at the promise of the Spirit. We went back into the Bible and we showed, um, we showed there how that the, there, there was a promise of the Holy Spirit fulfillment going all the way back in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel, how that God had promised that the Holy Spirit one day would come and fill the heart of the believer. So that had been promised. And then even Jesus himself, right at there, the Mount of Ascension, he's going to ascend up into heaven. He tells his disciples, stay here in Jerusalem and I'm going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He's going to indwell you. So the promise of the Spirit, number two, we focused on the power of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. And we talked about how that many Christians live their Christian life more or less powerless. They really don't live their life any different than someone who's lost because they're living by the flesh, just like someone who's lost is living like the flesh. The difference is, if you're saved today, you've got this great reservoir of power lying inside of you in the form of the Holy Spirit. You see, the day you got saved, the Holy Spirit came and indwelled inside of you. You were baptized. You were consumed. You were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And that power that uh, that helped create the heavens and the earth, that power that uh, uh, that planted Jesus in the womb of Mary, that power that endorsed Jesus in his baptism, that power that raised Jesus from the dead, that power that washed away your sins, that power that's going to seal you under the day of redemption, that is the same power that lies inside of you. And that is the same power that God wants to use to reach the world around you with the gospel. Um, a lot of times we focus on our fleshly inabilities and we say, I can't evangelize the lost because I don't know how. And God says, well, wait a minute here. I want you to go and learn the mechanics of sharing the gospel. That's important. But don't you forget, it's not your words that are powerful. It is me behind the words that is powerful. I um, uh, uh read about a man who stood at a water dam and was watching the water go over the top of the dam. And a lot of power there was generated through that dam. And he saw the the froth off the top and he thought, well, the water's spilling over the top. That's what's creating the power. Come to find out it isn't at all the water on the top. It's the water below the surface that generates all the power. That which cannot be seen. That which cannot be uh, uh, heard. That which cannot be... uh, Notice it's the below the surface. It's not the above froth, the the big splash down below. No, it's that power underneath the surface. And if you're born again, you're born anew. The Holy Spirit's living inside of you. Listen, it is his Holy Spirit's moving that does something great. Uh, How many of you uh, saw the testimony I shared on Facebook this week? How many of you saw that? Uh, Just a handful of you. I'm going to just briefly recap that story here uh, and Uh, I was um, sitting in my office Monday after I hung up the phone with this gentleman and uh, I called my wife and and God broke my heart um, in a positive way. I think think that I got a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like, uh, at least a portion of it. So this past Sunday, I celebrated 30 years of being saved. I shared that in church on Sunday. April 8th, 1988, I put my faith and trust in Jesus as a four-year-old boy sitting on a church. Some of you are going, in 1988, I was not four. I was much older than that. I'm not here to pick on your age. Amen. Um, 
But at 30 years ago, I put my faith and trust in Jesus. Well, this past Saturday, I, uh, I got up and Angela went somewhere with another pastor's wife in the area. And so she said to me, hey, look, I got the kids all lined up. They are going to uh, uh, Home Depot to the little kid crap thing, and, and I need you to take them. And I'm like, I don't want to go to Home Depot. But I got up, and I took them uh, dragging, kicking and screaming. And or I was kicking and screaming. The kids were dragging me. And uh, I got in there, and um, uh, we began to assemble the, the little uh, birdhouses. And I felt this nudge from the Holy Spirit inside saying, you see that family over there? There was a husband and wife. Had four little kids. They said you know, something inside saying you need to go talk to them, and I thought to myself, I don't want to go talk to them. I am always working. I, you know, I just want to be here with my kids, even though I didn't really want to be there with my kids. But um, um, anyway, so I helped them assemble the birdhouses and drive the nails down to the wood and all that stuff. And it came time for them to paint the birdhouses, and they did not really want my help. And so again, I feel this nudging: you need to go talk to them. Well, you know. When you want to talk to someone who you don't know, but there's like a wall there, you know what I'm talking about? Some people just put a wall up, like, don't come talk to me. Well, that wall was there. And so I had to figuratively climb over this social wall to break ice with him. And I started talking to the husband and wife, and maybe, uh, uh, probably my decade, in their 30s, maybe uh, young 40s, and uh, they were there with four girls. And so I started talking to the husband and wife. Eventually, the wife walked away, started talking to the lady. So I struck up a conversation with the gentleman. And, you know, we didn't really talk about church. We just talked about vans versus SUVs and just whatever. And at the very end of the conversation, then we got talking about taxes, right? Which, you know, everybody likes talking about taxes. But uh, that came up. And, um, and I told him, you know, I used that as an opportunity to say, I just moved up here from Maryland. And the only reason why I moved up here is because of the church and all this. And, well, why'd you move up? Well, I moved up here to to pastor a church. And so I didn't really go too deep into it from that, uh, but I did tell him about our church. I told him you know, how to locate us on the internet and in, invited him out. And he said, well, my wife goes to church with the girls, but it's been years since I've been. And I said, well, you know, you ought to come and, and check it out. And I just kind of left it at that. I took the kids and left. And so I didn't really think much else of it because, you know, if I've had that conversation once, I've had it thousands of times. And you don't really get much off of that. Very few people are ever going to visit this church over that kind of a conversation. I didn't give them the gospel. I didn't feel led to give them the gospel. So I, I didn't. Uh, so um, uh, Sunday, he calls the church. Sunday afternoon, he leaves the voicemail in my office. I got that voicemail Monday morning. And he just says, hey, he gave me his name. He said, uh, here's my number. Call me back. And so I called him on Monday. And he said to me, he said, first, let me just thank you for being a good Christian. He said, uh, you genuinely cared about me. And you weren't concerned about recruiting me on your team, per se. Uh, he said, listen, in my line of work, I deal with a lot of people who call themselves Christians. They even deal with some preachers. And the ones that are gospel-oriented, they all try to just ramrod it down my throat. And he said, thank you for not doing that. He said, um, uh, after you walked away with your kids, my daughter, who... My guess is she's probably oldest daughter, probably 10 or 11 years old. I saw her from a distance. She didn't hear a word of our conversation as far as I know. As soon as I walked away, she walked up to her dad and said, Hey, Dad, was that man a pastor? And he said, Well, actually, yes, he was. Well, how, how would you know that? She's like, I don't know. She said, uh, she said uh, See, Dad, there is a God. There is a God. And he said, All day long, I could not quit thinking about our conversation. 
He said, Sunday morning on April 8th, 2018, he said, Sunday morning I got up and for the first time in years I went to church with my wife. While he was at church Sunday, he put his faith and trust in Jesus to save him. Um, I wonder how many people, when we get to heaven, God is going to introduce us to. We gave them a, a gospel track in passing. Never saw them again. We, uh, we had a kind... We, we, we showed kindness and concern about them as a person in reference of being a Christian in the process. And God used that to stir their heart. In that instant, God did not want me to give him the gospel. He just wanted me to be friendly. He had a plan of him getting the gospel at church the next morning. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to know how to go one, two, three, pray after me. You need to learn that. But God can use you if you're willing to listen to him. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Heaven's going to be awesome. Heaven is going to be powerful. Number three, we looked at the parallels with the Old Testament. And um, uh, parallels of the, uh, with the Old Testament. And we talked about uh, with that, that um, just like the cloven tongue of fire in the wind in, in Acts 2, and you know the, uh, we talked about how weird those verses are to a lot of people, God used the same two elements in the Old Testament to endorse His tabernacle and His temple. When the... The pillar of fire, or in, in the King James, the cloven tongue of fire, was a pillar of fire sat on the head of the apostles in that upper room. And when the wind blew through the room, uh, that wasn't weird emotionalism. That was God endorsing His temple, His new temple, the temple of the body of the believer. And so them speaking in tongues, a lot of people want to pay a lot of attention to them speaking in tongues uh, the emphasis is to be on the Holy Spirit doing the speaking through them, not on the believer. So make sure you keep the emphasis where it belongs. God never wants us to put the emphasis on the Christian. He wants us to put it on the Christ of the Christian. Uh, but uh, I've done other st studies and series on tongue speaking before. And if you want more information on that, I can give you that to you at another time. Let's jump in tonight and uh, let's, uh, let's look at the uh, rest of the outline here. Number four, notice the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. Turn over to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So here Peter stands up at, at in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost or the feast of Pentecost. And people are gathered from all over. Jews are gathered from all over the world uh, there. Some of them speak the, 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 uh, the same language as he did, uh, the Greek language. Most of them did not speak it, but they did share the same nationality. Uh, they had been scattered abroad because of the Roman Empire. And so Peter stands up, look at verse 38. The Bible says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sin, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many uh, as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this uh, untoward generation, verse 41, then they, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 
Peter stood up that day at Pentecost with all those people there, uh, uh, some from Jerusalem, many weren't. He preached the gospel. And by the way, on this whole tongues thing, he look, yeah, there were people there that spoke uh, probably a dozen different languages. He, he preached in the language he knew, and God interpreted the words while they were in the air, on the way to the ears, God gets the credit for the tongue speaking, not Peter. So I want to make sure I make that clear. And uh, that tongue speaking always ends in people being saved or at least people getting the gospel. Tongue speaking is not just standing up and the attention's on the one speaking the tongues. No, the attention's on the gospel and the souls that are saved. But here Peter preaches the gospel along with the other the disciples, the apostles, and 3,000 people got saved. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine preaching at one time. And listen, probably more than that got saved. 3,000 people got saved and baptized. They went through the act of getting baptized. Now, it didn't end there. Turn over to Acts chapter 4 and verse number 4. Acts 4, 4. The Bible says, Howbeit many of them which heard the word, this is a separate occasion, believed in the number of the men were about 5,000. 5,000. So 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. Many of them went home. Now we're talking about those who lived in Jerusalem. 5,000 more get saved. Uh, look at chapter 5, verse number 14. Ch- chapter 5, verse number 14. And believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. So we see multitudes being added uh, to the church. Uh, but so we go from 3,000 to 5,000, now multitudes being added on a regular basis. Flip over with me to chapter 5 and verse number 14. Or that, yeah, that was 514. Flip over to 5 verse 28. Look down at verse 28. The Bible says, saying, did not we straightly command you? This is the um, apostles being questioned by the council, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. Uh, saying, did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Having the blood of Jesus brought upon them would have been the greatest thing that could have happened to them. But that's not what, really what they meant by it there. By the, by the opposition's opinion, these men had filled the entire city of Jerusalem with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now look down with me at chapter 6 and verse 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied. Now we've gone from addition to multiplication multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests uh, uh, were obedient to the faith. So, with 3,000 to 5,000 to Jerusalem being filled to being multiplied, multiplied. Uh, the gospel message was spreading. By the way, let me throw this out here. If anyone ever wants to question to you the, the, the realism of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, let me give you one really strong proof that Jesus did raise from the dead. Uh, when Jesus uh, raised from the dead, and the disciples went to preach their gospel, notice where they preached their gospel. They didn't go preach it in some city a long ways away from where Jesus is supposedly written, uh, risen. They preached it in the same city that he had been buried in. Now, if Jesus was still in the grave, do you think anybody would have listened to him? The fact that the Christian church, the church of Christ, exploded into, uh, some historians believe, 100,000 plus members in such a short time is built on the fact that Jesus' grave was empty. One of the greatest proofs, and by the way, there are many others. Uh, There are nine separate historical accounts 
uh, uh, secular historian accounts that, that tell us about Nero, there are ten separate uh, secular historian accounts that tell us that Jesus rose from the dead. Nero is one of the greatest emperors as far as power goes ever. But there's more accounts of Jesus' resurrection than there are even of his. Nobody questions Nero, but people want to question Jesus. My friends, Jesus is alive and his gospel is powerful. But it is only powerful when it's preached. I'm going to also make this statement here. We today are called to preach this same saving grace gospel of Jesus. It wasn't just for the apostles and the disciples back then. It's for today. I, I already know what some of you are thinking. But, pastor, I put my money in the offering plate for you to do that. So I don't have to. I'm sorry, my friends. Jesus wasn't just speaking to the apostles in Acts 1.8. He's speaking to everybody. It, that, that, that means you. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, then it's on you to share the good news. You say, I don't know how. I don't know how. Well, very soon we're going to be starting back up this Soul Winners Club where we train people how to lead a soul to Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, you can invite folks to church and get them here and bring them to church so they can hear the gospel here at church. I also want to make this point before we move on to number five. Where the message of the gospel has been greatly oppressed, that is a breeding ground for a great revival. You know, one of the other reasons why revival broke out in Jerusalem is because people had just, just shortly before been so hard against Jesus and had turned their backs on him. Some of you here tonight, and this is a great point of application, please hear me, especially if you work in a secular place that's ungodly. Some of you here tonight feel like that God is hated in your workplace. They take God's name in vain all the time. They, uh, they, they, they will intentionally talk nasty just because they know you're a Christian. Has anybody here ever experienced that? You know what I'm talking about? And you think, good night, this place is wicked. Um, the darker the night, the brighter the light. Do you know why the gospel light works so well in Jerusalem? Because the night had gotten very dark. They had just murdered the Son of God. Right on the heels of that, revival broke out. Maybe your workplace is dark, but God is getting ready to send revival, send a spiritual revival to your workplace. But He can't do it if mums the word in your heart. You witness within the confines of what your boss will let you do. Don't go breaking uh, work policy to, to share your faith, but you can witness off the clock. You can witness during your lunch hour if, if permitted. You make sure that you are a bright, shining light. Number five, notice the persecution of the Jerusalem church. The persecution of the Jerusalem church. Well, Satan was not going to stand by and watch the church go from 120 folks in an upper room to 100,000 in excess and just let that go. Satan saw that he was losing and Satan knew he needed to step up his game. Look with me, if you would, at Acts chapter 6 and verse number 8. Beginning of Acts 6, you find the selection of the, of the uh, deacons to make sure that the, the needs of the, the poor, the fatherless, the widows are taken care of. Um, and then we begin to hear about uh, how Stephen, one of the deacons, is going to be the figurehead of persecution. Look at verse number 8. We'll read down through verse number 15. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. 
Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the, the synagogue of the uh, Liber, Liber, Libertines, excuse me, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the power by which he spake. Then they uh, uh, suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came unto him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses uh, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. Sound familiar? For uh, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs uh, which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him, saw his face as it uh, had been the face of an angel. Chapter 7, Stephen stands up and he's his own lawyer. He defends himself. He begins all the way back uh, with Moses and goes all the way through the stories of the Old Testament. And basically, the conclusion of chapter 7 is a long chapter. Basically, the conclusion is that the same fathers that persecuted Moses and the prophets, uh, you are the descendants of them. And you're doing the same thing now. You're persecuting the church of Christ just like they persecuted the prophets of old and shame on you. You need to repent. And that message did not go over well. Look down with me um, at uh, verse number 54. When they heard these things, this was that, that, that in-your-face sermon, uh, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. You ever been so upset you just bit somebody? I can't say I've ever been that upset with somebody. They actually came and started biting him with their teeth. Verse 55, But he being full of the Holy Ghost, looking up steadfastly in heaven, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord. So now they're gnawing on him with their teeth. They're stopping up their ears because he's talking about seeing Jesus. And uh, verse 58, And cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. So Saul uh, consented to this death. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he, he fell asleep or he died. Now, Stephen would be the first one to be seriously persecuted to the place of death that was not an apostle or a pastor of the church. But he would not be the last. You see, this emboldened and empowered those who persecuted. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad. Look here. Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, uh, committed them to prison. Therefore, they were 
therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So what happened here is that this church had grown in 100,000 of excess, and Satan said no more, and the people that were running the Sanhedrin in the council who uh, opposed the Christian church, they said no more. So they killed Stephen. They began to persecute by locking up church members in prison and scare tactics and fear tactics. And so the church was... Persecuted. Now, let me just make a couple comments about persecution of the church because none of us want it. All of us enjoy our religious freedom, our First Amendment rights. We all want it. We all uh, uh, embrace it. We thank the Lord for it. But the day will come in America where our church will be persecuted for standing for what's right. The day will come where they come. I'm, I'm telling you, this isn't just uh, uh, hyperbole. This isn't just preacher talk. This is going to happen. The day will come where they will put locks on those doors and they will not let us meet in this building anymore because we preach the Bible unadulterated exactly how it is. I don't know when that day is coming. I don't know if it's in five years, in 20 years, or in 50 years. But that day will come where they shut us out of whatever property we're on. And I'm telling you, when that day happens, if I'm the pastor, I'm going to find a tree stump in the middle of a field somewhere. I'm going to open up the Bible and I'm going to preach. And I hope you all show up and listen. I'm not for sale. We're going to preach the Bible. They can label it hate speech if they want. We're going to preach the Bible. The persecution of the church. What does persecution do? Well, persecution, it cleanses the church of hypocrites and imposters. Please hear what I'm about to say right now. Part of me wishes the church would be persecuted today. Now, I'm not calling for it, but if it were to happen, let me tell you what would happen. I wouldn't have to run promos to get people to come to church. People would come to church because they love Jesus, not because they want to get a giveaway. When persecution hits the church, folks who are serious about God... Their, their game is up. People who are playing a game, they get off the bandwagon real quick. And persecution will strengthen the church. It will purge the church. It will cleanse the church of people who are just playing a game. People who say, I'll die for Jesus, but they don't go live for Him. If you're not living for Jesus, you're not going to die for Jesus. Persecution of the church is a great tool. It is a great tool because not only does it cleanse the church of hypocrites and imposters, but it cleanses the believer of pet sins and inattention to his walk with the Lord. Some of us in here this evening, if we're honest with ourselves, we're casual at best with our walk with the Lord. We're casual. And persecution came along. It separates uh, those who are serious from those who are just playing a game. And it drives away that pet sin. It brings us closer to our Savior. I remember the churches in Revelation who were persecuted, and, and uh, John told them to endure to the end. What else does persecution do? Well, it changes the status quo of the believer. Sometimes our problem is we're just stuck in a pattern of bad behavior. Persecution comes along and it breaks up that pattern. And it causes us to be serious about Jesus. And it also breaks the status quo of the church. And I believe it does those two things for the better. So we see here the persecution of the Jerusalem church. So how did that persecution, how did it uh, cleanse that church? How did it remove pet sins and inattention? How did it break up the status quo of the believer in the church for the better? Well, look at number six there. You see the pulling down of racial divides. The 
pulling down of racial divides. So God told the apostles, standing there on the Mount of Olives, he, he looked out on the city of Jerusalem there. He said, uh, I want you to be uh, 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 preachers in Jerusalem. And they said, no problem. And he said, then I want you to take it to Judea and Samaria. And they grabbed the collar a little bit and they said, Judea, okay, Samaria, you know, they're half-breeds. And we don't really care for those half-Assyrian, half-Jews. And then he said, I want you to take it to the Gentiles. And they said, I don't know about all that. So when he left, what happened? Well, they went into Jerusalem to the people they loved and they preached the gospel. Um, you remember the Tower of Babel? How that they were of one mind in one place and, and nothing was going to stop them fulfilling the imagination of their heart. And God reached down and he stirred up the languages, probably stirred up the colors at that point, skin. And guess what? They, they scattered. They dispersed around the world. God, through persecution, allowed that same effect to happen here. Now they're going to leave Jerusalem and they're going to take the gospel into that next layer, Judea and Samaria. You remember in John chapter 4, the woman at the well? Remember that story? John 4, 4, and he must needs go through Samaria. The disciples he had dragged through Samaria. They were used to walking around Samaria. We're not staying in a Samaritan hotel. We don't want to be. Uh, uh, we don't want to patronize one of their hotels. They're half breeds. We don't want to eat their food. We don't want their dirty fingers in our food. We don't want to go in there. They're half breeds. Man, these Jews, they were racial folks. They were racial people. They saw the Samaritans as being half, you know, like half human. And so God sent this persecution, and what it did is it broke down that racial divide. It began to show that this, this faith of the Messianic Jewish king was not just for the Jews, it was for all. Letter A, notice Philip's revival. Philip's revival in Samaria. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse number 5. So Philip, one of the, um, uh, one of the um, deacons there, look at verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, oh, and preached Christ unto them. Now, hold on a minute here. In John 4, Jesus preached Christ. Jesus preached the Messiah. Jesus preached the saving grace. And what happened? You remember? The woman at the well got saved. What happened after that? Boy, a bunch of people came out and got saved. You know, these people were ready to be saved long before Jesus showed up on the scene. And here we find an example of a harvest field that was white and dying. I wonder how many people died and went to hell in Samaria because of the racially charged attitudes of Jews. Well, now through persecution, God's broken down that wall. Stephen's there. And man, the, the fruit is ripe for the picking. Look at verse 6. And the people with one accord, speaking the Samaritans, uh, gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voices, came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with uh, palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man uh, called Simon, who, uh, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out uh, that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the, the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorcery. But when they believed Philip, 
preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and uh, wondered, beholding the miracles and signs that were done. Revival is breaking out. Philip's gone there and he's preaching the gospel. And man, demons are leaving people and people that are sick are getting healed and folks are getting saved in, in groves. So what is happening here? The racial walls between the Jews and the half-breeds are beginning to fall. Letter B, we see Paul's repentance in Damascus. Look at chapter 9, verse number uh, 1. Now, this may not directly affect that racial wall at first, but it would have the greatest impact as Paul would become the apostle of the Gentiles. Look at verse 1. And Saul, later known as Paul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest, from chapter 9, verse 2, and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were man, uh, men or women, he might bring them bound in Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there signed round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and uh, I heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, and said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told uh, uh, thee what thou... Uh, uh, what, what thou must do. And later he goes in and a man by the name of Ananias, who was a Christian in Damascus, would lay hands on him and remove the blindness. And, and uh, he was saved here in this experience. And so God took the arch enemy of the church, struck him down with light, and, uh, and, and caused him to want even greater to be saved. Let me float a theory out here for you, all right? A Bible nugget. This is a Bible theoretical nugget, all right? This is really neat. I got this from Brother Own, so I got to give credit where it's due. Talking to Brother Owens one day, and he said to me, I have always thought that the rich young ruler that came to Jesus, you remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? And Jesus said what to him? He said, you've got to keep the Ten Commandments. And he said, I've kept these from my youth up. Then what did Jesus say to him? Go give all that you have to the poor and come and follow me. And the Bible says he left heavy hearted, right? Um, Brother Owens theorized to me, and I think this is a great theory, that Saul maybe was that rich young ruler. You look at his stout, you look at his class, you look at his education, you know he probably had a lot of money. You look at his religious zeal, you know that he had a, a, a heart to do things the right way. You look at the way he lived his Christian life, i got to say, I don't know if that's who it was, but boy, it makes sense that he would have been convicted there at that spot. Later we know that he was apostle because he saw Jesus and even would have seen him risen. Uh, 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 that, uh, more about that at another time, another service. But here we know that... Uh, uh, God had been working in Saul's heart for a long time. He said, it's hard to kick me against the bricks. He said, man, I've been working on your heart for a long time and you've been ignoring me. And he said, ignore me no more. And Saul got up in that day and, and he got saved. And so the racial walls are beginning to come down as Saul, later Paul, would become the greatest missionary to the Gentiles in the Bible. Letter C, we see Peter's reasoning with Cornelius. Peter's reasoning with Cornelius. And I, I mean, we're moving quick here. Again, this is supposed to be a, um, uh, not a verse-by-verse -verse study, but more of just a generic view of, of the book of Acts here, or a, a, a more macro view of the book of Acts. But uh, what happened here, uh, well, look at uh, chapter 10, verse 25. We'll, we'll let the Scriptures tell us. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him, and fell down at his feet and worshipped him, 
But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many uh, that were come together. Look down at verse 30. And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of one Simon, a, a, a tanner by the seaside, uh, who, when he cometh, shall speak Unto thee, uh, 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 speaking to thee. Look down at verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted uh, with him. Look down at verse 44. Uh, While Peter yet spake these words, the gospel, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word, and uh, they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as uh, came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have believed the, uh, uh, the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. Now we're talking about the, the pulling down of racial divides. Peter struggled with racism even beyond this. You, you see in another passage in Acts that Peter would not eat at a table where Gentiles was and Paul would uh, stand up to him and oppose that. Peter was a racial man, uh, probably taught that from his childhood. And so God had to do a wonderful work by putting him in a vision to see a, a blanket drop with different types of unclean animals. And God had to say, what I have called clean, call thou not unclean and all that story. And he's sitting there pondering that when the men from Cornelius' house show up there at the gate and he says, I perceive that God has sent them and he's to go with them. So God had to do a great work here. But what happened was that Peter, a Jew, led this Roman centurion, Cornelius, who was seeking for the Lord to be saved. This would not have happened had it not been for the persecution of the church. Now, here's the conclusion I want to draw, and we'll shut it down tonight. Um, I think I can quickly get through uh, point number seven there. Here's the point I want to draw. These works... The Philip revival, the Paul's re- repentance in Damascus, the uh, Peter's reasoning, preaching the gospel to Cornelius, these works culminated in the first multicultural church. That is the church of Antioch. Look at Acts 11 with me. Verse number 22. This would become the center of the hub of the wheel uh, after the church of Jerusalem had be- become persecuted. This would become the center of Christianity. Look at 22. The, the, then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, uh, that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God, uh, was glad and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord, for uh, he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then it departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought, into him, uh, brought him into Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and uh, taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first, or little miniature Christs first in Antioch. So a large multicultural church, some Jews in the church, some Gentiles in the church, some uh, 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 Samaritans in the church, half Jew, half Gentiles in the church, a multicultural church. And I've got to say, one of the reasons why I love our church is how multicultural we are. 
We got people from Portugal. Amen, Hermana. We got people from uh, Peru, my wife. Uh, we got people from Jamaica, Brother Lexton back here. Uh, we got people from all over the globe that are part of our church. Miss Sally Nastasia is from Thailand. We, well, we got the globe covered here. I believe almost from every continent except maybe Antarctica. Uh, we, we got it covered. Uh, no penguins in the church. But uh, uh, we, uh, we are a multicultural church, and that pleases the Lord. I'm going to leave point seven for next week. I'll just finish with this. There's no room for racism in the house of the Lord. Don't you ever treat someone different because their skin color is a little bit different than yours. Or because maybe their culture was different than the one you grew up in. Jesus loves them just as much as they love you. And maybe if you can't get that figured out, God will send some persecution your way to help get you past that racial, that racism there. So let's love people. Amen? All of us have a soul and it's all equal in the sight of God. Let's have a word of prayer this evening. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. May it speak to us. Lord, how many divine appointments do you have for us that we miss because we ignore that nudge of the Holy Spirit? Lord, that, um, that kind word in a Christian sense, um, that gospel track, God, we have no idea how you want to use that in someone's life. You are the all-powerful God. Holy Spirit, you live within us. May we be tender and submissive to you. May we follow your lead. And Lord, I pray that you would use the gospel as we lift you up to grow your church and to grow those who come to this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet and uh, we'll have a, a small time of invitation as the piano plays. The altar is open. I encourage you to come and submit your heart to the Lord and, and let the Holy Spirit lead you and guide you in all wisdom and truth this week.